Hi everyone, just a quick disclaimer, for the recording of this episode, I accidentally ended up recording through my desktop microphone instead of my professional one. So if I sound a little different in some areas, that is why. Now, on with the episode. This larger perception in media and movies and television of Hollywood and LA as being this predominantly white space. It's this misconception that's also regularly presented. You definitely see that LA is very mixed and there are many different neighborhoods. A lot of these neighborhoods are the blending of different cultures and just different languages, perspectives, people. Hello, welcome everyone to the Straight Ahead Animation Podcast, where we spotlight rising black, indigenous, and people of color who are the future voices of the animation industry. I am Raymond Dozalanda, one half of your co-host. And I'm Yuki Okamura-Wong, the other half of our whole host. Our guest this week is Angela M. Sanchez. They are a Mexican-American working as an animation writer. Would you mind telling us a bit more about yourself? Sure. Thank you so much for having me on Straight Ahead. We're happy to have you on. Thank you. <laughs> Again, uh, Angela Sanchez and... Uh, yeah, I uh, I write for animation. Um, I haven't been in animation that long. I've been here for about two years. Um, my background is mm. actually in education and in philanthropy, and I made my transition into animation during the pandemic. I got my start uh, doing freelance for preschool shows, including Apple TV Stillwater, and my most recent position was being a staff writer uh, with Disney TV Animation. But before we do get into the interview, the way we like to start off on Straight Ahead is by playing a little game called In Between. We're going to give you two similar choices, and then you have to choose in between the two of them and let us know why. Okay, I was not prepared for this. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Great. No, yeah, we're we're blindsiding you right now. <laughs> That's how we like it. <laughs> okay, I'll start us off with the first question. Which illusionist would you rather go on an adventure with? Zantana from Justice League? Or Doctor Strange from the MCU? Katana, definitely. Like, oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> Look at women in magic are already a minoritized community. I'm going to hail her. That's a fair point. I get that. Fair, fair, fair. I feel like that one, um, as Santana also has the more traditional magician look. I feel like mm-hmm. Doctor Strange has more of like a warlock kind of feel mm-hmm. and stuff. I, I would say, yeah, I would like to spend the day with Zatanna. Uh, That'd be cool. She just seems fun, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the showmanship of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I think I think Doctor Strange, at least the way he's portrayed in the MCU, too serious for me. I feel like he doesn't mm. let himself have fun. Yeah, I feel that. I wasn't sure if like you were going to go for... Because like, the effects in Doctor Strange are much different from... like Zatanna is very much like uh, traditional magic, like sort yeah. of like playing with those like elements of like cinematics in that way, like screen wipes and stuff like that. But I think Doctor Strange is is more of that like crazy mandala look stuff that you can get with CGI. Yeah, that little those energy waves or like that kind of like energy smoke that kind of appears when they're like conjuring a spell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. How about you, Yuki? Same? Santana? I mean, yeah, I, I mean I just think she is more fun in general. Also, like I might like throw up if we do Doctor Strange's thing where, like, you know, buildings are popping out of buildings and you're flying through the oh, air. Oh, yeah, that sense of vertigo. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I, I think the visuals are really cool, especially yeah. in the first Doctor Strange, but it definitely is, like, I it over simulates the senses. I think, like, I can only stare at that for, like, so long before I'm, like, I'm done. 
Oh, yeah, so that's going to be cool. Yeah, especially like um, her spells, the way she does is like, you know, saying things backwards. I think that's fun. Mm, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's cute. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last question. Would you rather spend a day at the beach with Lilo and Stitch from Lilo and Stitch or explore Los Angeles as a ghost club member like in City of Ghosts? Okay, shoot. This is a hard one. No, very. <laughs> my two favorite things. <laughs> I'm like, oh, Lilo and Stitch all the way. Yes, wonderful. Please give me that two foot terror. <laughs> but uh, man, but also getting to hang out with the city of Ghost Club. Oh my god, and they're all so cute, and they're they're probably all the same height as Stitch as well. <laughs> I think yeah. I think they're all like two foot terrors. Well, yeah, actually, the city of Ghost Kids are very nice, but <laughs> the city of Ghost Kids are super sweet. I just I can't finish that table with them now. <laughs> I'd, I'd bump my head and be like oh i'm sorry children um, i feel like in this scenario you could be like their age or close to their age yeah <laughs> sure <laughs> oh man that's a hard one but okay okay let me split myself in half <laughs> okay yeah let me split because this is fictional right let me split myself in half like 11 year old angelo would 100 percent go and hang out with lilo and stitch because like <laughs> you don't understand like lilo and stitch is probably the reason that i got into animation in the first place um and like as any red-blooded child growing up like i love drawing and i used to tell my dad like please can i become an animator i want to be an animator because i'd watch you know like the previews and trailers and stuff um when uh when you had like vhs's and they would have the stuff before the feature and uh and my dad would just look at me and go like doctor teacher lawyer engineer and since you didn't learn how to tie your shoes until you were eight engineers out of the question (laughs) yeah but yeah i i was like i was dissuaded from an art track but it also came back to me too when lilo and stitch came out and uh and that collection of essays um uh with chris sanders and other uh, creators who worked on the uh on the movie um talked about the origins of lilo and stitch on these very rough you know especially very like monstrous sketches of stitch at the time Uh and one of the things always stuck out to me about the movie and then even that collection of essays was uh, Lilo's presentation as a little girl with big issues. And that was one of the first movies where I saw myself in because, mm-hmm. yeah, Child Protective Services showed up in that movie. And they're not necessarily like, Cobra Bubbles isn't a bad person. Yeah. He's trying to figure out what's best for Lilo. And so that was the first time I saw a very complicated family situation in, you know, yeah. a quote-unquote kids movie. Um, and a yeah. tiny family that was tiny like mine. So... Yeah, Lilo and Stitch is a very special place in my heart. So 11-year-old Angela would totally go and pal around on that side. Um, <laughs> Grown-up Angela, who hangs out and now has a car to go to all these different places in Los Angeles. <laughs> I, would, I would willingly shuttle around the City of Ghost Kids Club and just be like, Aww. okay, we want to go to Venice Beach today? Let's go, you know, and we'll drive out there in about two hours from where I live. That's, so uh, that's awesome. great. Yeah, yeah, I love that answer. What do you think, Ray? I think you already know what I'm going to say. Do I? I think so. All right, go ahead. I would go spend a day at the beach with Lilo and Sis because they're in Hawaii and I want to go back to <laughs> Hawaii back so to Hawaii. bad. <laughs> Maybe not right now with everything that's happening. Uh, I think definitely tourism should totally, like, you know, take a pause, let the indigenous people recuperate, you know. Yeah. Don't really try to make there. things harder by, like, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's a situation, but mm-hmm. if things were in a better place, 10 out of 10, I would always choose to go to Hawaii. Any excuse to go back to Hawaii, I'm going to take it. <laughs> yeah. Man, I wonder if we're, we're going to have to, like, 
unload these questions with Hawaii like bias <laughs> in the future. Um, this is also a tough one for me, not necessarily because Lilo and Stitch and the Ghost Club, but they're also very cool. I just like it's funny. I went to a castle tour at Lake Tahoe last year with some friends, and there's like this little castle. It's like quote unquote castle. It's really just like a big stone, you know, little courtyard on Lake Tahoe. And we went on this like sort of historical tour of this tiny like landmark. And one of our friends was like, I'm really glad you guys wanted to do this because I always feel bad. I don't want to be like the nerdy friend that's like, let's go on a, a like museum tour. And we all <laughs> like we all like turned to them and we were like, no, dude, you picked the right group to go <laughs> I love I love going to places and like doing, you know, historical tours like that because it's so fascinating how much history like kind of is in America. Like America's not a very old place, so I always find it fascinating like visiting places that have some sort of history here. And like City of Ghosts is like incredible because it sort of is like, you know, Los Angeles has a very rich history and there's there's a lot to be like seen here under all of the like glitter and <laughs> Hollywood and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, City of Ghosts actually dives into LA indigenous history. And that's the part mm -hmm. that you really don't see in a lot of presentations of Los Angeles and a lot of media representations of it. And actually it was that episode where uh, they interview Mr. Craig that I was like, oh my God, they're actually interviewing real people. Cause I'm like, is that Craig Torres? It, Craig Torres is a Tongva elder. And oh, uh, that's when I, like, at the end of the credits, I was like, I need to see if this is like, Mr. Craig, voiced by Craig Torres. And, <laughs> He's and, also they, and they had Megan and Mercedes in there as well, a doormate. So it was like, there's a moment where I went, oh, my God, Elizabeth Ito, like, really did her research and legwork here, getting to reach out to awesome. the Congo community and be inclusive and thoughtful and having this particular episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah, see, okay, see, see what's happening? <laughs> just sort of nerd out about it i mean mm -hmm. i love being on the beach and i would love to hang out with lilo and stitch but i think this is a very specific like niche thing where i'm like yeah i wouldn't be able to like i could go to the beach kind of anytime but like i would love to kind of go on a, a historical adventure with like the ghost club members so i'm gonna lock that in that's good i'll say you could go to the beach anytime but the beaches in hawaii is a lot different the water is a lot warmer there's <laughs> a lot more there's more buoyancy i hate the beaches in la too damn cold. Sand is too damn hot. Water's too damn cold. It's not fun. <laughs> Thank you so much for playing In Between with us, Angela. And if you want to hear the extended version of the In Between segment and find out what else we asked our guest, be sure to support and subscribe to us on Ko-Fi. You can find us at ko-fi.com forward slash straight ahead AP. And if this is your first time tuning in, please be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at straight ahead AP to stay up to date whenever we upload a new episode. Without further ado, thank you so much, Angela, for being on the podcast. We're so excited to have you on, especially for Hispanic Heritage Month. Ooh, thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm super <laughs> excited to be here. No, yeah, I'm really excited when the, this kind of time comes around because I really want to talk to, you know, more fellow Chicanos, uh, Hispanic creatives, Latino creatives, and just being able to chance to talk to you. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be great. Yeah. And then for those that don't know, when we in, when we had that interview with Latinx Animation, Angela was our point of contact. She's the one that helped schedule and get that organized. So we're really appreciative to you for setting that up for us. Most definitely. And I'm still involved with Latinx Animation. They're an awesome organization. And yeah, for anyone listening, be sure to check them out. Yes, yes. 
So one of the first things that I want to ask is how did you get your start working as a writer in the animation industry? Sure. So I I didn't start out as a writer um, in animation. Like I didn't go to film school. This was uh, this was not like a um, a set track for me. It's the industry that I transitioned into. So growing up um, as a kid, I, I like everybody else. I love to draw, and uh, animation was one hundred percent one of the things that caught my eye. Watching the trailers and little mini behind the scenes uh, before you would get to a feature for the VHS of The Lion King, one of those scenes was a live lion specimen being brought into the studios. And Mm. I remember then that clip, they showed the animators sitting there on their drawing horses, sketching out the lion. And as a kid, I went, oh, I want to do that. And they show the handler (laughs) pet the side of the lion. They go, oh, I look at him. He's a big kitty. I'm like, I want to pet the big kitty. So uh, (laughs) as a kid, I go to my dad and be like, hey, dad. I want to be an animator like them. My dad would look at me and go like, no, no, you don't. <laughs> he said, doctor, oh. teacher, lawyer, and lawyer, engineer. And since you didn't learn how to tie your shoes until you were eight, engineers out of the question. So, uh, and I grew up in Glendale. So yeah, Disney Animation oh. Studios was in my backyard, but it was mm-hmm. also the case of so close, so far away because you don't know what you don't know. And yeah. um, as a first generation college student, definitely it was me kind of filling my way out and my folks, you know, I don't think that animation is like a viable career. They know the cliche of starving artists. So very mm-hmm. much the situation of like, please go into something that could be lucrative for you and for the family. So mm-hmm. yeah, um, writing was a thing that got encouraged in my family. We won't talk about Angela's fan fiction years, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was very much seen as like, hey, writing can lead you into a career in law. It can pan out to a number of different things. Writing is a good skill to have. So I followed Mm -hmm. that into education. I went to UCLA for grad and undergrad. In undergrad, I was a history major with English education minors. Related to completing my history degree, uh, I did my uh, senior thesis on women magicians and their role in representation of magic history. We can talk more about that later on. But it it was actually at the end of my third year of college that two things happened. One was I was a college mentor for middle schoolers and we had seen our students go from sixth graders to eighth graders. And one of our final trips with them was to Walt Disney Animation Studios over at the Alameda lot. And walking around there was the first time I realized like, oh, this is an industry as in people get lots of jobs in this particular area. And it's not just the big sexy jobs of like artist, animator, or writer. I didn't even know what writers were yet. Um, Mm -hmm. But you could also have quote unquote jobby jobs like accounting, communications, marketing. (laughs) And that was an eye, it was supposed to be an eye-opening experience for our middle schoolers, but this is an eye-opening experience for me (laughs) as a 20-something year old. And a week later, I also went on a blind date with my boyfriend now of 11 years. Ooh. And when we when we met, he had just had his interview that afternoon with Man of Action Studios for an internship. And I mm. said, oh, you want to go into animation? I go, do you draw? And I made the drawing motion with my hand. And he goes, <laughs> no, I want to be a writer. And I'm like, a writer? People write? People write for animation? Like, you don't just draw the cartoons and they show up on my screen, like, I don't know, six months later. I have wonderful understanding of production timelines. <laughs> Everybody starts somewhere. Yeah, no kidding. And so this made my little brain go, oh my gosh, like, this has been a whole thing that's interested me for a long time, but I never understood it and I never knew. And why is that? Mm. 
you know, as a friend would wisely later on point out to me, he just said, because you're brown, sweetie. And <laughs> it was a moment of like, yeah, it's not too often that I see folks like me working in spaces like this. Mm-hmm. And so I still pursued my education track because I was already planning on going to grad school. I already sent in my application that fall. Uh, I started mm-hmm. out in a teacher's education program, realized I wanted to go into a different area of education. So I moved over into higher ed. Um, I finished up my master's in student affairs, which is administration for higher education. I was uh, I worked in UCLA's alumni diversity programs and then was hired into a foundation, which for folks who work in the animation industry, I describe being a program officer at a foundation. It's a lot like being a development executive in animation. So nonprofit organizations send their inquiries to me and I review them. If there's a there there, we have conversations with that organization move them up to developing a proposal. I take the full proposal. I distill it down into a board briefing. I pitch it at the board. Hopefully the board greenlights it for a grant. And then when Mm -hmm. the organization is granted, I put on my current series hat and I follow that organization to make sure that they do all the things they said they would do in their proposal. So uh, Mm -hmm. that's, uh, and that's how a show makes. And that's how um, (laughs) grants ultimately made their way through the foundation I worked at. We were a national foundation, so based in downtown Los Angeles, but um, I was on the road about 25% of my time until the pandemic happened. And mm. that is uh, that was kind of that keystone moment that led me into, okay, you know, what does it mean to write for animation? And suddenly it was a lot easier to be able to listen into a Zoom panel as opposed to having to get up and leave the office for the afternoon awkwardly. Yeah, animation yeah, yeah. became a yeah. lot more accessible during the pandemic. Totally. Yeah. So the pandemic happened. There was a lot more panels that you were able to attend and animation was becoming more accessible. What was your first opportunity that you got the chance to break in and to write? Like, how did that opportunity come about? So when the pandemic hit, when everybody was in lockdown, (laughs) folks weren't going anywhere. (laughs) And I had started tinkering with some animation scripts. A little bit of writing background on me. I had started already doing like kids picture books and also young adult literature Hmm. and this was my now first foray into writing uh animation screenplays and so one of the first things i did was uh throw an original pilot at screencraft animation uh competition and so that was in 2020 and my little baby actually made it up up to finalists and i was like oh baby got legs this is pretty cool yeah and also that winter is when uh, Latinx and Animation was looking for a part-time program coordinator. And hey, I was oh, okay. at home during the pandemic. I took on a part-time job on top of my full-time job. It was thanks to Latinx and Animation that I started to build out a community. I found out about things like Straight Ahead Animation Podcast. <laughs> and it was, it was really a chance to get to meet more people in animation and also get a crash course into, okay, this is a storyboard revisionist versus a storyboard artist versus a director of story. Um, This is an art director versus a background designer or a props designer. And it gave me a better sense of, okay, who are all the people that work in animation? What are their roles and their responsibilities? By spring 2021, I had had a general with a showrunner who was looking for a script coordinator slash writer's assistant. And at the time, I wasn't about to leave my day job, but the showrunner said, okay, keep in touch with me. And Mm -hmm. I'd reached out to him for coffee in September that year. And he said, oh, hey, uh, you want a freelance script? And I was like, oh, my God, whoa. <laughs> uh, yes, <laughs> oh. of course. But wow, thank you. And yeah. he said, yeah, um, I remember what it was like getting started and getting my first opportunities in this industry. And I always try to pay it forward. And that showrunner was Rob Hoagie. 
uh, and the show oh, was still water on Apple God. TV. Yeah. And oh my God, Rob was probably one of the best people I could one get to meet in the industry just because he was very kind and genuine and also one of the best people to work with, especially as a first time writer to work with a showrunner. Because he said, take your time with this first script, work on the outline, you know, give yourself the full two weeks. And he was so very patient and very supportive. And mm. it's that kind of attitude that, you know, I wish could be even more common among so many showrunners and folks working in the industry at large, just because it's not just wholesome, it's healthy. And mm. the way that Rob encouraged me to take my time, I was like, wow, that's amazing. He goes, I believe in living the values of Stillwater. I'm like, okay, <laughs> that's cool. Because Stillwater is a mindfulness show. And so after that, I got a second freelance script from him as well. And then there were other writer, writing opportunities that cropped up as well. Um, I did a uh, an episode for Coco Melon Storytime podcast. And Coco that Melon. led to Coco more Melon. opportunities with Moonbug. Yeah. Coco Melon finds awesome. everybody. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah. And that one came through a friend as well. It's very much the, the old um, saying of writers hire writers is very true. So having writer friends in your corner and folks who just want to get to know you in the first place as a human being, that's very important to having your community and your group of friends as well. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. And again, like, I like the fact that, you know, you're making genuine connections with people and people who are willing to like, either fight for you or like, you know, just like, hey, I know this person, like, like, they'll be great at the job, like just being able to like, putting your name out there. I feel like that's where a beauty that is the animation industry is that we really try to, at least myself, I, anytime I hear an opportunity, I try to let people know. I try to like share resources. I try to like, you know, get people's foot in or knowing someone that I can just recommend. And like, I like that about this industry that we, we all try to lift each other up and not try to get, I haven't met anyone. There might be people, but I personally haven't met anyone that's tried to get, keep entering animation. Yeah. Animation is very chill. it's very chill it's supportive at the end of the day people are like i want to make cartoons i want to have fun i'm gonna have fun with my friends let's hire my friends yeah absolutely so the next thing i kind of want to segue into now that you've gotten these freelance scripts and i've gotten more into animation what is it like being a staff writer on disney tv's primos where the central characters are latinx yeah so uh, first of all for for even getting the the gig with dtva that came through uh, through Jay Francis, whom I met through Latinx and Animation. Oh, and Francis, yeah. yeah. And then that led to uh, him saying, hey, look, it, we have shows that have built-in budgets for associate writers, which is like being a junior staff writer. You have a sample that I can share and we'll see if anyone's looking. And I said, OK, sure. So I sent over my 6 to 11 sample because I really want a 6 to 11 show. And oh, like ages six to 11. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. Right. So, uh, yeah, uh, animation is typically broken down to age demographics of preschool bridge, which is like four to seven ish, and then six to 11, quote unquote, big kids. <laughs> uh, I thought, I thought, yeah, when you said six to 11, I thought you were referring to pages. I'm like, okay, that makes more sense. <laughs> Our pages are a little more than 11 pages. Our, uh, it, it turned out that uh, the current series executive followed up, and then I got to preview the, uh, the pilot animatic for the show. And that led to suddenly a meeting with the exec. And then the story editor was added on, the showrunner was added on. Before you know it, I was looking at this calendar invite and asking my boyfriend of so many years now, going like, this isn't a general, this is an interview, right? And he goes, you had that many people on it? That's an interview. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) And so I remember seeing that first pilot animatic and going, oh, wow, this is a Mexican-American story set in Southern California. Like just the specificity of the characters, the specificity of the story. 
And it's based on our showrunner Natasha Klein's life experience growing up in the Inland Empire. And hmm. that made me go, yeah, it just made me go, wow, you know, this is this is a real story. And I was hired onto the show and the writer's room is predominantly Mexican-American from Southern California. And mm. this made me think like, whoa, you know, has this ever really happened? This is a moment of getting to see the the intentionality behind the authenticity of this show and getting to see how folks are contributing their own personal stories into this. We all care deeply about Primos and the relatability and also the realness of a lot of the stories. And mm. the two writers in the room who are not Mexican-American from Southern California also have immigrant backgrounds. Uh, one writer is from Venezuela and the other is from the Philippines. And so mm. having these identities and their stories that they share in this room and oh my God, and everyone here is like the funniest person alive and I'm just me. It has been amazing getting to have this experience because <laughs> it feels real. And when you get at the specificity, that's when you get to dig into that universality. You know, so mm. personally, if we have 12 primos who are going to kick down the door and spend the whole summer with me. I come from a relatively small family. For a lot of my life growing up, it was me and my dad. But we've all had moments where suddenly something comes up and our family member, you know, breaks us the big news of like, you're going to be spending your summer plans this way, child. <laughs> and that's something that a lot of people can relate to. <laughs> it's also very much about how do you discover who you are through the lens of your family, which is the crux mm. of what our main character, Tater, does. She's going to be 10 years old this summer. And... She's trying to figure out who she is and she can't get a moment of quiet. You know? <laughs> um, but gradually she starts to also realize like, oh, there's a lot about me that I'm discovering. And it's thanks to my family around me. Mm -hmm. And so those moments that hit hard, that's what I love about this show so much. It's so very real. And it's something that we can all find our special place in. And mm -hmm. also, yeah, those aspects of like the opening shot of the 210 freeway. <laughs> I grew up outside of the 110. Like all these things are very much a SoCal show. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's really great. I love, I love hearing that. I think um, I'm excited for Primos to come out. And I think the interesting thing to me when it comes to shows like with uh, what the central characters are like, you know, Latinx, Hispanic, Mexican, uh, Salvadorian, whatever. I think the thing that I've been discovering being Chicano myself is that the weird thing about being like, I guess, Hispanic is Hispanic is such a general term for, mm. you know, for all of Latin America, people from Latin America, whether you're Mexican, Honduran, Chilean, Brazilian, uh, Nicaraguan, is like everybody's going to have their own little authentic kind mm. of like story and background because we're not all the same. We're all just different shades of brown. And so it's kind of weird when it is kind of grouped up kind of generally, but like it's kind of hard like living with that. You know, I feel like when I see a story, whether the char central character is his like is Mexican or whether they're Puerto Rican is like, cool, they're not Mexican. But like I still identify with this individual and their story, whether they're from a Puerto Rican background or Mexican background, Salvadoran background, I'll still be able to find something to relate to this individual. And like, I don't know, I feel like that's it's it's a weird beauty kind of kind of a thing because not every Latinx character is going to be Mexican. And if it is mm -hmm. cool, if it's not, like I'm still down to see what, this, what the story is for this individual. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I like about Primos is that the family is very much multiracial as well. Natasha mm -hmm. Klein's family growing up was also multiracial. Her mom was first generation Mexican-American. Her dad was a uh, white guy from the South. 
And her family was also very racially blended. And our primos, they range from Tater, who is a brown mixed race baby, to also her other Mexican-American cousins, her Afro-Latinx cousins. Mm. She also has super huero, super white looking cousins. You know, it, it really does. And then also uh, a prima is also a mixed Filipina as well. And in my family, we had that type of diversity. One of my cousins is a Japanese Mexican-American. And it's it's very much to me like it's reflective of SoCal, also the U.S., you know, where there's so many different blended identities. And yeah. one of the things I appreciate about Tater, and yes, her nickname is like Tato. It's just like, <laughs> uh, but one of the fun things about Tater is that she's a no sabo kid. I grew up as a no sabo kid. My Spanish is very much a work in progress. And I think it's important to represent that because mm. 25% of kids in the U.S. are Latinx. And some of them are the children of immigrants. Some are generational kiddos like I was. And not everyone is going to speak Spanish como the Royal Spanish Academy. And that's okay. You know, it's okay to have many different types of Spanishes, you know, including U.S. Mexican-American Spanglish, which, you know, is from time immemorial here as well. I think mm-hmm. it's important to show those kinds of things and then how that affects our identities, too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, actually, I think that's something very inter- interesting that you point out, because when I first saw the trailer, I kind of got the, the feeling that I was like, oh, I wonder if this is from a No Sabo Kid perspective when I first saw it with some of the wording, you know, and it's like, and again, my sister, my sisters are No Sabo Kids, like my, the youngest sister, especially like, because I'm the oldest of four. So the, the third oldest child, which is my other sister, she helps translate some things, but she still isn't the best at it. But yeah, the youngest knows nothing. Mm-hmm barely anything yeah, i feel that yeah. yeah and i think that's a valid representation of those like i definitely have been these past few years especially in college i've been on discovery trying to get more connected to my culture like bettering my spanish trying to like you know be just more connected i think sometimes like you know some kids are like looked down on or like you know get like you know like oh you're not really mexican or you're not really hispanic you're not really like this um mm-hmm. and i think it's really kind of unfair because especially like I'm just already being like Mexican-American. Mm-hmm. You're already always fighting that battle on two fields of not being accepted as an American and not being accepted as a Mexican. It's just it's just weird that mm-hmm. we thought to kind of fight that fight. So I'm kind of happy to hear that we're getting that perspective of No Sabo uh, kids. And like, mm-hmm. it's not a bad thing. I, I, I really feel like we as like Hispanics and Latinos need to stop tearing each other down and like really just try to lift each other up. Mm-hmm. And this is where we bring in the obligatory clip of the James Olmos store, like, you have to be Mexican as the Mexicans and American for the Americans. It's very <laughs> Sorry, true, though. I think that's, like, really cool or, like, fascinating that you guys have, like, a term, like, no sabo kids. Um, like, I've never so it just means, like, a non-Spanish like speaker. Yeah, 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 like, I don't speak, right? Like, I no sabo, right? I don't know if there's, like, a similar thing for that in, like, the Asian community, because, like, I grew up the same way where like my grandparents only spoke Chinese and my my dad and his sisters knew Chinese because they had to. And then when I grew up, he didn't tell my brother or me. He didn't teach us any Chinese. And I was like, why didn't you just like talk to us in like Chinese when we were growing up? It would have been easy. And he was like, no, it was too much effort. <laughs> he was basically like, no, nah, I didn't want to. And I was like, damn. So like, I don't know. I've been thinking lately how, well, my grandparents passed away. So it's like not as much a problem like the language barrier. But I think a lot about how whenever we go to a Chinese restaurant, like me and my cousins, we always have to have our like aunts and uncles or like parents order food for us because like we can't speak the language. And like 
once that generation goes, like, will we even be able to eat those foods anymore? Because we won't be able mm. to, like, go to a restaurant and order in the language. <laughs> it, it's something I think about a lot nowadays. <laughs> of like, man, that might be like a piece of my culture that either I'll have to, like, figure out how to only say food words or, like, just not be able to go to, like, those places anymore because, like, they don't really communicate in English. Like the best best places don't really communicate in English. Do they have the menu where you can point them? Kinda. Like a lot of it's also in Chinese. <laughs> but that's wrong. Anyway, I no, I just think it's it's really interesting and like cool from the like you said the Nosabos perspective and also from the like Filipino perspective as like also like a Spanish colony. I'm like always oh, that's that's so fascinating to me. There's like actually some overlap there too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've had conversations in the room about that. Like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. we should a colonizer. Um. Yeah, I, I feel like also at this point, I feel like we should also we should we should claim Filipino Filipinos as part of the Latinx <laughs> community. Says Latinos. I feel like we I, should. I have heard that Filipinx is like a thing too, so I'm sure yeah. there's also discussion with them around that on the mm-hmm. X factor. But Yuki, you bring up an interesting point though too about you know like asking parents why didn't you teach me, and I feel sometimes there's also. Mm-hmm there's a collective almost blame game of like your parents didn't teach you uh, you know it's like well yeah. it also depends on what the climate was like around that time like for my folks i didn't learn spanish from them because my mom is somewhat conversational my dad didn't speak any spanish mm. my grandparents spoke spanish but they were mexican americans and mexican immigrants living mm-hmm. in the us in the 50s and the 60s and you just you did not speak spanish at that time mm-hmm, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know and it won like the points of pride in my family was always, oh, yes, you had uncles that served in World War II and in Vietnam. You know, you should be proud oh, of this American wow. heritage. And so mm-hmm. like this grasping, clutching desire to want to prove how American you are to the point where you cut off your nose to spite your face. Kind of thing. Yeah, you know, absolutely. It's, like, it's real. And so the idea of, you know, it's your parents' fault. It's like, well, you also you have to understand about a lot of the discrimination, the very real racism that accompanies it. And then also the time and the effort it takes to also participate in language acquisition. Like, yeah, for there sure. There were yeah. kids, in, yeah, growing up in Leno, there were kids who went to like, who got to go to Armenian school or kids who got to go to Korean school. And I'm like, that's so cool. You get to learn another language. Like, I have to go to school on Saturdays, you know? <laughs> and, and somebody's got to pay for these classes too. Yeah. So it's like, you know, and I'm also investing in my own Spanish language classes and, you know, tutoring, but I actually have the time and the money to do that now. I never had the time and the money to do that when I was just, you know, trying to graduate college and get a job, you know, and then when I had a very demanding job as well. So it's, it is very much a, it's a collection of many different barriers and things that isn't so simple as, you know, well, why don't you speak Chinese or Spanish or whatever Mm -hmm. the hereditary language of your family is. Mm Mm-hmm. As much as I would want to keep going down this track, I feel like yeah, there's so sorry, many other... I don't want no, to track for no, the no, animation no, no, side I, of things. No, I, I, I'm, lo- I'm loving this. I'm loving it, especially because, like, again, yeah. it's Hispanic Heritage Month. But there's also so many other questions I want to ask, and I just want to make sure we have time for. For example, you wrote a children's book titled Scruffy and the Egg. Could you tell us what was the inspiration behind this story? <gasps> she has Cute. a physical copy. Um, She's showing it home. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's like, you guys can see this book and nobody can. <laughs> no, the audio can't see. But if folks want to see illustrations, they can go to my website. Um, but uh, yeah, Scruff in the Egg is uh, is a children's uh, picture book that I wrote and illustrated. Oh, and yeah. uh, actually, there's it's a series. There's book one and book two, and I'm still working on book three. That's awesome. But it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's generally it's about a stray dog who finds an eagle egg that's fallen out of its nest. And mm-hmm. uh, the egg kind of like half hatches. It's got little and a beak uh and they go on adventures and stuff because they're trying to find a home 
And this was a story that my dad and I told each other while we were going through the very real experience of being homeless. And Mm -hmm. so during the kind of the first tremors of the Great Recession um, in 2007, during my last years of high school, we had lost our home. We bounced from motels to cold winter shelters, eventually wound up in a family shelter. And to get through this challenging period, my dad would reference stories about a stray dog that we saw around our neighborhood and said, well, think of it kind of like like being the scruffy dog. And we're we're looking for we're looking for our home. I'm like, okay, you know, and my dad's like, actually, I'm the scruffy dog and you're an egg. I'm an egg. What do you mean? <laughs> well, because you got a big beak, you talk a lot and you like to eat. And I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> so I started drawing cartoons, though, this funny dog and an egg that would walk around with it. And if uh, if Scruffy and the egg were running from the dog catcher, we were having a hard time with our case manager. If Scruffy and the egg were scrounging for scraps, my dad and I were wondering where our next meal would come from. And so mm-hmm. finding moments, though, of lividity, getting to use this story as like kind of a cathartic experience to get to talk about the real heavy stuff we were going through. Mm-hmm. Scruffing the A became the story that we told each other back and forth. Mm-hmm. I started I started drawing the first like illustrations for a picture book when I was in grad school. And then my father passed away from cancer in 2016. Mm-hmm. And that's also when I was like, okay, I, I do want to get this book out and I want to be able to tell it the way that I've written it and the way that I've illustrated it. And more than anything, because this is a story that is about homelessness and single parenthood, I want to make sure that it would be accessible to kids and families experiencing homelessness. Because when most people think about homelessness, they don't think about children, <laughs> you know, yeah. even though yeah. 25% of people experiencing homelessness is someone underneath the age of 18. And the average age of a child experiencing homelessness is eight years old. So that's like a third grader. So mm. I want to make sure that this book could be accessible. And you can't really do that with a traditional publisher. So I went on Kickstarter. I crowdfunded this book and I donated. um, I still donate free copies to family shelters, schools that have um, high populations of students who are experiencing poverty or experiencing homelessness, which is very common in LAUSD. And also to an organization I'm on the board for called School on Wheels, Inc., which provides volunteer tutors to K-12 students experiencing homelessness. And I had a School on Wheels tutor when my dad and I were at the shelter. So Scruffing the Egg is very much a a heart story for me. It's a very personal story. And that's why I like being able to share it and to give a very specific narrative to something that not everyone has a whole bunch of understanding around and Mm -hmm. something that is an experience that usually isn't talked about in kids' media. Yeah, that's incredible. Wow. Yeah, no, I I love that. And I'm happy you were able to share that story, especially because, yeah, you're right. Like, I think when we think of children's books, like, I feel like there is some like one that touch on the harder topics, but it definitely is like, oh, what to do when someone's picking on you or calling your names, how to control your anger or like, you know, things that like the average child will experience, but definitely, yeah, something child homelessness is not something that I that I'll admit has never even crossed my mind and just it's wild to me and like I'm glad that you had the ability to be able to put that into a book and especially like yeah it's comes from such an authentic place Mm -hmm. this kind of leads me into my next question because of how you were saying how you donate these books you're on the board of directors for school on wheels and you have also described yourself as an equity advocate and have provided workshops presentations and other resources to organizations, including shelters, schools, libraries, and other nonprofits. Was Scruffy and the Egg your motivation that drives you to do all this? Or what drives you to be involved in all of these things? 
and to provide these resources and workshops for all these different organizations. What drives you to do all this? Mm-hmm. So first of all, I don't like sleeping. Uh, <laughs> 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 oh, actually, it, I would say it goes back further than that because it goes back to the reason, you know, when not getting to be an animator growing up, why I went into education? <laughs> because for me, education is, I see it as one of the few remaining pathways where you have the opportunity to change your socioeconomic status, kind of. So, hmm. uh, because things like industry and the military are no longer viable pathways for that. Those used yeah. to be the old school pathways. It used to be with, you know, the GI Bill, you go to college, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. And that's like, where's that now? And yet at the same time, getting further into education, you know, and studying this as both a discipline and my future career pathway, you also quickly see there's a lot of inequity in this industry too. Yeah. And like, even as a high school student, I knew I was tracked into different classes than a lot of the other Latino kids in my high school. I was mm-hmm. one of the handful of like Latinx kids in, uh, in a lot of AP classes. And I had only had, looking back, I'd only had one non-white teacher in my entire K-12 experience. And that was my biology teacher. And she was a woman in science. Oof. But <laughs> it really was also a moment where I said, I want to change this. Because Mm. I know my story is quite exceptional because I still went on a quote unquote traditional college pathway. I went to an R1 research university. I completed in four years. I went straight on to graduate school and I graduated with minimal debt. Mm -hmm. But just because I got to defy the odds, they shouldn't stay that way. It's not about beating the odds. It very much is about changing the odds. And so Mm. I knew I wanted to work in education for those reasons. And while I'm working in animation now, I very much enjoyed my career working in education. And so looking at the ways of why does community college take so long to transition into a four-year university if that's what you're going for? Mm -hmm. How do we make sure that there are different pathways for folks who just learn differently? If someone Mm -hmm. wants to be in and out and have a, a technical skills degree certificate so they can get on with their career and with their life, you know, these programs should be as flexible and open as possible. And they should accommodate folks who are also working professionals or working maybe even two-day jobs and also balancing a child or other family dependents. How do we make sure that education is truly equitable? One of the projects I headed up while I worked at the foundation I was at was around basic needs for college students. And so basic needs includes things like housing and having food in your fridge it also includes things like childcare, transportation, healthcare, mm. a lot of things that for students who had parents that went to college or are continuing generation students, as you might say, things that a lot of folks don't usually think about. And these are the very real things that can affect someone's ability to persist or wind up dropping out of college. So for me, like it's not just about like, oh, this is like the work that I do. It's very much about how do we make it more equitable? And equity doesn't mean quote unquote being fair and treating everyone the same. It means making sure <laughs> that everyone has an opportunity that meets them where they are. Another way mm-hmm. to put it is equality is like giving everyone a pair of shoes and equity is like giving everyone a pair of shoes that fits. You know, <laughs> so yeah. making sure that folks have that. And also part of this, to your point about the things, you know, that I'm involved with and also the workshops that I provide are around diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. And so what does it mean then? to understand the very real impacts of things like racism in the U.S., which is the foundation of our country, Mm -hmm. and being able to understand how does this affect us today? How does this 
imbue us with the way that we think systems ought to operate or who we think of as a community college student or as a person experiencing homelessness. Mm -hmm. And even just on like the regular everyday, when we say mermaid, what does that look like? (laughs) Is it the redheaded, fair-skinned Ariel? And then Mm -hmm. in the recent Little Mermaid, we finally got to change what that schema looks like. And we finally have a mermaid, thank you, Halle Berry, who looks like something, someone that other children can relate to, specifically black and brown children. And she has these beautiful head of braids, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it makes, it can change so much in our perspective when we also confront a lot of things that we have grown up with. A lot Mm -hmm. of racist notions that we have internalized by simply the function of existing in society and being a human being with a prefrontal cortex. (laughs) When you start to also break down, you know, the whys behind the way that we think and how this informs us, that also then even changes the way that we tell stories. And so that's Mm -hmm. also kind of the fluidity between working in education and then also now working in animation. What kind of Mm -hmm. stories do I want to see being put out there? And how does this subvert the expectations of folks who are watching on the other side? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's really incredible that you're kind of like doing it on multiple levels of like, uh, you made Scruffy and the Egg, which is, is sort of like your one like creation, your venue of like, you know, directly affecting stuff, but you're also working on the like coordination and production side of like uh, Latinx and animation, getting that community help, and then also paying it back towards like those programs and, and people who will help like those who are experiencing like, you know, the homelessness and everything that you had experienced before. So like on multiple levels, you're kind of like trying to help out. I think that's really amazing. It's like sort of a full, <laughs> full-on approach, <laughs> as much as yeah. you can as one person, right? Yeah, I'll fit sleep in there somewhere. <laughs> I know, gosh. And you work? Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, not to mention that on top of all of that, you're also a magician and a member of the Hollywood Magic Castle. Could you tell us, what is your fascination with magic, and does it play a role in your writing? So... I'm a member of the Academy of Magical Arts at the world-famous Hollywood Magic Castle. That's the full title. <laughs> um, I got into it because magic was my dad's hobby growing up. Uh, like he was, he was super into magic as a kid, and uh, I still have some of his old magic books uh, because then when I was a, a creature growing up in the home, <laughs> I found my way over to his magic library, and I started thumbing through that, but I got into the back door. I got into magic history first. And so I first started reading the biographies of different magicians growing up. And that made me go, oh, this is cool. And so, (laughs) super nerd. Uh, And then that led me to then getting into performance magic. And so in middle Uh school, I started doing more card tricks. And I asked my dad, you know, for the first time, can you show me a card trick? Can you show me how to do a card trick? My dad goes, okay. So he does a thing for me. And then I go, okay, but how do I do it? My dad says, okay, I'm going to do it for you one more time. And he showed me the card trick one more time. Then he handed me the pack of cards and said, now figure it out. And I sat there going, what the heck? Wait, <laughs> <laughs> but that's how you learn. And so in my little tiny hands trying to figure out their way around those size of poker deck cards, you know, and eventually my, my hands have grown a little bit more since then, so I can now manipulate a poker deck card. Some people also use bridge cards, which are smaller too. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so that got me into magic and I started performing for my friends at school. I founded a magic club in high school and then another, another magic club at UCLA. And it was also at UCLA, though, that I realized like, oh, I'm the only person who's not male in this group. And even some of the other, and I was one of the co-founders and one of the other members one day said, okay, we're going to put on our big, you know, university school-wide performance. Are we going to saw Angela in half? 
I'm like, what? No, you don't saw me in half. I'm one of the co-founders. We saw we saw George in half, or Fred in half, or whatever. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but you saw me in half. <gasps> I'm the girl. You know, and so, uh, that's what led to me doing my senior thesis on women in the representation of magic history. Um, hmm. because I want to talk about, you know, why why do we have very much this cliche of the woman if she's on stage who gets sawn in half, lit on fire, you know, dismembered. And mm-hmm. so and this actually leads down a really interesting, I'm not gonna go too far into this, but super nerdy pathway of like when we think of like a witch up until Harry Potter, it was very much like the snow white wicked stepmother as the witch, you know. Mm-hmm. And then uh later on you know whereas like men get to be wizards which is like gandalf and merlin and super cool looking you know mm-hmm. even into old age women just become hags so, yeah. <laughs> and then when you get into women on stage with a few rare exceptions women didn't perform magic and women as assistants weren't a thing until women gained the right to vote and oh, wow. the first illusion featuring a woman's body on stage being dismembered was sawing through a woman and mm-hmm. so before that, you used to use men as assistant and young boys as the people who would get dismembered, lit up on fire and all that stuff. <laughs> but very much uh, Sign Through a Woman is a political act. And it's a political magic show of women need to be back in the box where they came from. So uh, mm-hmm. this led me into, you know, doing my senior thesis at UCLA, um, also teaching a class on magicians with minoritized backgrounds. So magicians who uh, were women from the LGBTQ plus community, magicians of color. All this, you know, ties into then the, I also co-founded the Women Magicians Association at the Magic Castle in 2014. So it's been very much a passion and a hobby of mine. It's also a nice, it's a good hobby to have that's not writing. And it's a good thing to have as like a palate cleanser in another community that's not necessarily related to animation and lets me just enjoy something that's fun that I get to share with other people. Uh, yeah. Magic does appear in my writing and other things. One of the first stories I started telling was drawing Texas cartoons of a magician who just kept getting himself, you know, into these really bad situations. <laughs> uh, I later on turned him into a little flip book. I haven't found the right story to tell with him yet, but I'm sure I'll get there eventually. Oh. One of the things we also want to ask is, does your cultural background play a role in the work that you do? Yeah. So I think one, my cultural background as a Mexican-American definitely influences all the work that I do. Uh, we talked a bit about that earlier. I would add on to that, that a lot of my stories have a very strong grounding in Los Angeles. They're very LA stories. Mm. And I think part of that is also this larger perception in media and movies and television of Hollywood and LA as being this predominantly white space made up entirely of transplants. And it's this misconception that's also regularly presented, which is so weird because when you do see people of color in a Los Angeles store, it's very much, oh, this is hood LA. And people yeah. of color only exist on one side of town or in these certain pockets. And that's not the case. So for anyone who like lives here or has grown up here, mm-hmm. you you definitely see that LA is very mixed and there are many different neighborhoods. And a lot of these neighborhoods are the blending of different cultures and just different languages, perspectives, people. Also, a lot of LA is actually not white. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Also, just to remind people, like again, California belonged to Mexico. A lot of Mexicans lived in California until the US. Because again, oftentimes we didn't have documentation of our land because it was passed on like from several generations. So when uh, Uncle Sam came and knocking on people's doors, they didn't have the proper dem- documentation of the home. A lot of people got kicked out. And that's mm-hmm. why a lot of us got displaced. But again, California, especially SoCal. 
you're here. Yeah, and what a lot of people don't know is like historically, California, even once admitted into the union, was a bilingual state. Like on paper, mm. in documentation, like everything <laughs> was was written in like a lot of periodicals around here were in English and Spanish until the late 19th century, early 20th century. But suddenly mm. there was more of a crackdown, especially as you had more white Anglo settlers moving into California. I mean, also like L.A. today, though, the non-Hispanic white population is only 29 percent and 48 percent is Latino, you know, like. It's, and then in between there, you have other POC populations. Um, our African-American population is also about what, uh, 12, 13 percent. Our API population is present and then also mixed race identities as well. Mm-hmm. Understanding L.A. as predominantly POC, unfortunately, isn't something that's usually presented and something that I would like to see. I would like to see that change Yeah, because mm-hmm. it's it's not how it appears in the movies. And I think you know, having a very strong Angelino perspective, being 2.5 generations here, I think that that's something that we need to see more of. And that's also why I love City of Ghosts. So, <laughs> <laughs> just to tie it all back to the thing before. You know? Yeah, I mean, I, I think like the whole interview, you've really put an emphasis on like how much you love history and love delving into history and really like tying that back to like all of your interests and how that drives you to like you know, tell certain stories and really like are passionate about like things because you see where the history came from. And it's like, why did we lose a good thing here? <laughs> like, why don't we know so many of like, why why don't people know so many of these things? And yeah, like how it was a bilingual state and then it became a more English geared towards, yeah, white Anglo-Saxon. It's, it's, it's really interesting. Before we get into our final question, where can our audience find you? And is there anything else you would like to promote? Sure. Um, let's see here. You can find me at AngelaMSanchez.com or my Twitter is at underscore AngelaMSanchez. And then my Instagram is AngelaMSanchez.writer. I'm pretty easy to find. Oh, and also Blue Sky, AngelaMSanchez. So yeah, you, you type that in, you'll get my name, you'll find me. I'm pretty <laughs> Googleable. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Is there anything else you want to promote? Um, I think right now... Tune in to Primos. <laughs> um, <laughs> our official release will be in early 2024. So uh, yeah, keep your ears peeled. Awesome. And as we come to a close, what final advice would you want to bestow on those that want to pursue a career in writing? Ooh. So in terms of pursuing a career in writing, again, my own path was very twisty, windy into this space. I would say the best things that have been helpful have been for me personally, one, take a storyboarding class if you ever get the chance. Hmm. That was probably the best thing I did for myself as an animation writer. I did a storyboarding class over at Glendale Community College. And having our instructor just hand us a couple of pages of a script and say, okay, board this, you realize how clear you need the writer to be in order to make sure you get the scenes correct, the actions correct, and that you have all you know all the characters and props that you're working with. When you're working in animation, you're not just by yourself or even just with your own individualized team. You mm-hmm. also have to think about the other teams that you interact with. Writers should be conscientious of the design teams, of the storyboard artist teams. And how do we make sure that we're not handing them a massive, overwhelming script and that we're also very clear on some of the design elements that are going to be present in it? The other thing I would say, just like as a writer and for your own mental health, eyes on your own page. <laughs> this is something we heard from teachers growing up. But eyes on your own page in the sense of, Don't worry about what other people are doing. Focus on your own work. You're going to drive yourself crazy trying to be like other people or be all like, oh, how come so-and-so, you know, got the gig or got promoted or whatever. It's like, calm down. Everybody moves at their own pace. And again, 
this is why you make friends with folks in this industry because so and so coming a story editor guess what they're going to look for writers like you that means a job <laughs> it's only going to be healthier for your writing if you just focus on the stuff and on your own projects that you like to do and don't yeah. worry about the progress or lack thereof that other folks are making it's a it's definitely a long game of persistence so you will get rewarded the more you keep at it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah amazing advice yeah i yeah, love that it, and like yeah that's a really good point just like kind of keeping your eyes on your own page and like basically like you can't control what happens to other people so just like work on the stuff you can control yeah, you only control what happens to yourself i mean a lot of opportunities are just luck unfortunately that that's just the truth so yeah don't don't compare yourself to others in that way it was so amazing speaking to you today angela thank you so much for being on And if you audience enjoyed our interview with Angela today, please rate and follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you tune in. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at StraightAheadAP. You can follow myself at Radio Silence on Instagram. And you can also follow me at Choodles on Instagram as well. If you have any suggestions for future guests, please contact us on social media or send us an email at straightaheadpodcast at gmail.com. We love discovering new professionals and want to use this platform to boost these voices of the future. Special thanks to our editor, Ashley Itliong. And finally, a big thanks to our music composer, Daniel Rodier. Thanks again for listening. And thank you once again to our guest who has a bright future straight ahead. Until next week, have a wonderful day. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you.